<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. 2023 marks the 80-year anniversary of one of President Franklin Roosevelt's greatest goals, his first ever face-to-face sit-down with his allied partners, Churchill and Stalin. You've seen the photos in the history books, but did you know the Nazis found out that the leaders of the allies were trying to meet in person in Iran? And by a random stroke of luck, they had a chance to send assassins to kill all three leaders. But the Allies orchestrated a very intricate plot to try to keep the location and the three leaders safe. But the communications between the Nazis, their intelligence, the plot almost worked. And it's a story of heroic Russian spies, Nazis gathering in Madison Square Garden, Franklin Roosevelt hiding in the back seat of a dirty sedan through the streets of Tehran while his body double comfortably rode in the presidential limo. It's a page turner and it's told by one of our greatest storytellers. Mr. Brad Meltzer is the number one New York Times bestselling author of The Lightning Rod, The Escape Artist, many other bestselling thrillers, as well as The Ordinary People Change the World series that my son loves. And we always look for Brad's picture in all of the books. He's the host of History Channel's uh, Brad Meltzer's Decoded and Brad Meltzer's Lost History, which he used to help find the missing 9-11 flag the firefighters raised at Ground Zero in New York City. Along with his collaborator, Josh Mensch, uh, he has brought us the new book, The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill. Our friend Ken Burns calls it riveting, told with confidence and mastery, a page turner. Welcome back. Happy New Year, Brad Meltzer. Hey, my friend, John. So good to be back. Healthy, happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. I'm so glad to be talking about Nazi conspiracies that have nothing to do with the Freedom Caucus or Kanye West, Brad. Um, Many times we've talked about incredible undertold stories in history, but this one, I mean, the the rescues, the body doubles, the the intrigue. How did you find out about this one? Yeah, you know, um, I I don't believe the internet is good for very many things these days, but I found it just surfing along the internet. I found this one, it was like a, a half a page story. And it said that there was a secret plot in World War II to kill Joseph Stalin, FDR, and Winston Churchill. And I was like, is this real? Is this nonsense? What is this? And then I found this story that, and you mentioned part of it, uh, it's 1943 in November, and the big three are meeting for the very first time in Tehran, Iran, of all places, because they want to have a meeting, they want to get together, they want to figure out, you know, get on the same page for logistics and strategy and war plan. And here comes Stalin and Churchill and FDR. And everyone's excited because the president of the United States is coming to town. So they're all waving at the motorcade and everyone's craning their neck. And there's a guy waving back from inside. 
But the guy inside, as you said, is not FDR at all. It's a decoy. It's a secret service agent. The real FDR is ducked down and hiding in the back of a dirty sedan, chasing a Jeep in the side streets of the city because they're worried he's going to be killed. And I was like, why is FDR hiding in the back of a sedan in the height of World War II? And that's where the Nazi conspiracy really started for us. It's just trying to figure out why is this happening? Why did the Secret Service think this was a threat? And what was really going on? It's interesting uh, that there's the characters here that should be famous and aren't. I will admit I had never heard of Mr. Otto Skorenzi, who's a, yeah. a little-known Nazi, but really found a way to get this plot moving. Yeah, he's he's one of the most amazing moments of the book is meeting this Nazi. And Otto Skorenzi is brought to Hitler's secret. I mean, truly, I, you say the word secret layer and you think of supervillain, but it's true to the wolf's layer. It's Hitler's secret hideaway. And Hitler brings all of his special operations members because he wants to find the best one, lines them all up in one room. And he asks this key question. It's a test. He says, what do you think of Italy? And everyone gives some kind of, you know, ask us an answer that basically says, oh, Italy's, you know, they're part of the Axis power. They're on our side. We, of course, love Italy. And Otto Scorzeni in that moment interrupts everybody and boldly says, I am from Austria, my Fuhrer. And it's a gamble by him. He knows, of course, that Hitler's from Austria, but he's gambling because he knows anyone from Austria actually hates Italy because of World War I, they took a part of Austria and never gave it back. And the gamble pays off. Hitler looks at Otto Skorzeny and he finds his guy and sends, I won't ruin the scene, but he sends Otto, Adolf Hitler sends Otto on a secret mission that when you get to the scene in the book, you're going to ask yourself, this can't be real. You're going to say it can't be real. And I was so convinced I said to our editor, we need to have a photo of the moment put in the book because no one will believe it unless we show it to them. And when, as you saw, when you get to that page in the Nazi conspiracy, you see the photo of what Otto Skorzeny's secret mission is and who he rescues and how they come off this mountain. And it is just the most incredible story you've never heard. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I do find it fascinating how contemporary it is that Skorenzi got the gig by being able to suck up to the Fuhrer better than anybody else in the room. We've seen lots of examples of this from, shall we say, uh, more recent authoritarian leaders. Right. Does that sound for me? I mean, that's only, and, and that, listen, when we write these books, Josh and I, we of course have the, you know, we know the plot, right? There's a plot to kill Churchill and Stalin and, and FDR, and that's great. But what we always say is, what's the book really about? And we forget in the context that we write this book and we, 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 are, we hit this pretty hard is the Holocaust doesn't start with, you know, death camps. It starts with slogans and propaganda and book bans and, you know, nonsense like that. And yeah. it takes a group of white native born Germans who love to spout this hate filled theory that this minority group is going to take away their way of life. Does that sound familiar to you? Yep. Right? It's exactly a where we are group, right A marginalized group that the powerful are encouraging the masses to be afraid of. And, uh, and listen, and when, we see Kanye, uh, and when we see Kanye West do this, we, we wring our hands. We see Charlottesville, we wring our hands. We say, I can't believe this is happening in America. And one of the great scenes in the book, and we purposely put it in there, is we found this Nazi rally that takes place in Madison Square Garden in World War II. It's 20,000 people in the heart of New York City in Madison Square Garden cheering for the Nazis with a giant picture of George Washington next to swastikas. The first Surrounded speaker, by swastikas. Right? And the, the first speaker says, 
if George Washington were alive today, he would be friends with Adolf Hitler. And this is not something, you know, when Kanye West, it's not new. And using your celebrity to shoot, you know, to spout venom is not new. Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh used their celebrity to bash the Jews back in World War II. And the sad part is this story keeps repeating and repeating. And, and our goal is when you see a group of people telling you about how much they hate those people, and sometimes it's the Jewish community, and sometimes it's the black community, the gay community, the immigrant community, when you see those words, those people, that's when you're supposed to use your voice and speak up. And what I really want to reiterate is we didn't write the Nazi conspiracy just to entertain you or inform you, but it's to warn you. Yeah. That here we are again, and it happens so easily when this group of really, really crazy right-wingers put their foot in the door in government and start taking power. That's when you got to start paying attention. Well, like I always say to you, current events aren't current. And that's sure true in this book. But what's even more remarkable is that, you know, a sign of a good history, and I say this as the child of a history teacher, is when you know every character in the book is long dead, and yet you are still gripping the pages because the storytelling is so tight. And I got to be honest with you, Brad, as, as scary as it is learning about this plot that that could have worked to kill all three leaders at once, I, I found it almost equally scary how fragile the bond between the allies really was. I mean, this meeting almost didn't happen, which could be almost as scary as the plot. Well, and, and, it, and that's what, of course, struck us, too. I mean, we, we tell the stories of World War II that, you know, it, it's like we punched the Nazis in the jaw, we saved the day, and democracy was saved. And isn't that wonderful? And that's like a nice trite story, but that's not what really happened. It was never that easy. We, in fact, didn't even care about the Nazis. We got involved in World War II because of Pearl Harbor. And one of the things that struck me was FDR, you know, to make it to be a good president, it's not about having the best campaign speeches. It's not about having the best slogans. It's not about, you know, being that everyone loves you. It's about when a disaster happens. And if you look at Washington or Lincoln or truly our best presidents, when a disaster happens, that they're able to pivot in a way that is exactly what is needed at the time. And FDR, he's, he's like, he has one belief, and that is he's, got full, he's full of charm. And he's like, I can handle Stalin. Stalin likes me better. I'll take care of Stalin. And he knows that Churchill also likes FDR better. He's like, I'll take care of Churchill. So he's telling one story to Stalin, one story to Churchill. Stalin's pissed off and is like, I'm not going to Alaska. I'm not going anywhere you want. You got to come to me. And Churchill's like, why do we got to go to him? And FDR is like, do we have to go to you? And this thing is about to fall apart on not big, giant things, but just fragile, small egos of men who are just, you know, fighting to, to do what they think is right in that moment in time. And you see how close we were to it being a giant disaster. Why was it in Tehran? And, and what was Churchill's issue about traveling to meet Stalin? I, I always found it fascinating that this meeting would happen in Iran, of all places. Yeah, the first thing that, that they do, and it makes sense, is they take out a ruler. And they say, let's find the equidistant point from Great Britain, from the Soviet Union, from the United States. Why don't we meet in Alaska? We'll all meet there. It'll be great. We're all close. And Stalin's like, I'm not going anywhere because you guys aren't suffering what I'm suffering. And I think this is a key point. Fair point. You know, when the Battle of Leningrad happens, just to give perspective, the United States buried in World War II about 420,000 people. The United Kingdom buried about 451,000. The Soviet Union buried 24 million people. The Battle of Leningrad, when they circled the city, the Nazis circled the city, 
They said, we're not going to deal with POWs. We're just going to not let anyone out of the city. And for nearly a year, they starve everyone to death. People start eating their dogs. They start eating rats. Then they start looking at each other and doing the unthinkable. It's the single greatest loss of human life in a major city in history. In a year, 900,000 people are dead just in that city. And so Stalin's like, you're coming to me because if I leave here, millions of people are going to be dead. And he's not wrong. He's the one who's fighting the Nazis more than anyone else at that moment in time. And they pick Iran because one, there's a railroad there that's giving him supplies. We're, we're giving him supplies during World War II. And he knows because we, we're, we have that railroad, we have British in, intelligence and military there. And there's also Soviet intelligence and military there. He also knows two things. The Soviets have an embassy there and the British have an embassy there. And he also thinks the desert is a great place to hide. So no one's going to know they're there. And Roosevelt finally, he keeps saying, I don't want to come. I don't want to go to Iran, meet me somewhere else. And Stalin's like, it's here or it's nowhere. And that's why the big three go to Iran. They're like, it's got to be there or it's never going to happen. And the meetings were held in the Soviet embassy in Tehran, right? And that's- Yeah, so yeah. It's amazing. You know, when when FDR gets to Tehran, that's when they tell him, listen, there's a plot to kill you. Is the head of the Secret Service, a guy named Mike Crowley, another great footnote to history, a guy you've never heard of, I've never heard of, I didn't know this guy existed. He's promoted the day after Pearl Harbor. He, he physically carries Roosevelt in his hands, cradling him like a baby when he has to move him from place to place at certain times because it's not wheelchair accessible places. Right. And Mike Riley lands and the Soviets tell him, listen, there's a plot to kill your boss. He knows that the British have found a group of paratroopers who came to the city a few months earlier. He knows how the Nazis are using assassination, how we're using assassination at the time. He knows what the threat is. And he's the one who says we got to go. And there's a choice. You can stay in the British embassy, FDR, or you can stay in the Russian, in the Soviet embassy. What do you want to do? And again, FDR, just the balls. He's like, put me with Stalin because I know I'm friends with Churchill. I need to charm Stalin. And he literally goes sleeping with this, you know, the guy he doesn't, he doesn't know as well. And what no one knows, and I, won't, I don't want to ruin all of it, but uh, while Roosevelt's there, his room is bugged and yeah. the Soviets are listening to every word. And so it just becomes this incredible moment. And I'd never heard of it. I'm like, why do I not know this story? And what happens is, is Roosevelt, when he comes back from Tehran, they don't want anyone to know this story. Roosevelt holds a press conference and talks about the Tehran meeting. And he says, oh, also, the Nazis tried to murder us. And the phone starts ringing like crazy, right? Everyone's like, what are you talking about? But why do you not know the story until now? Because then Normandy happens. The mm. greatest assault in modern time, a million people, you know, uh, you have 150,000 troops storming the beaches, a million people as backup after the first wave. And this story in Tehran, the meeting of the big three and the assassination becomes a footnote. And it just gets lost until, of course, you know, historians like myself and people who love good stories like myself finally say, we need to tell this story. I know the Nazis only had a few days to try to complete the Fuhrer's mission, uh, Operation Long Jump. But it it seems like the reason why it's been kept a secret is that it wasn't ever really kept a secret. It just never took hold as a story. There was too much going on in the world. And this story of a plot that almost happened but didn't just never made it into any history books. Well, and the other part of it is, is, is... The people who saved the day are the Soviets. It's the Soviets who say, hey, there's a plot to kill you. And when the Cold War happens and World War II nostalgia peaks, guess what happens? 
We don't want to tell stories where the Soviets are the good guys. That's not a good story for us to tell in America. So the story shifts and it becomes about how the Soviets were bugging us and how maybe this didn't even happen. And what do we even know? This is all trickery. And one of two things happened. Either they tried to kill FDR, Churchill, and Stalin, or if you believe none of it, that means Joseph Stalin completed the greatest scam of all time on Winston Churchill and on FDR and arguably single-handedly changed the course of World War II. Mm-hmm. Either way, whatever version you want to take, that is a story worth telling. It's an unbelievable lost moment in history. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Welcome back. I'm curious. I'd like to ask about your your process a bit, Brad. I'm always fascinated with how you manage to just have the volume of quality of work that you put out. And I know you've worked on two other books with Mr. Mensch, The First Conspiracy and The the Lincoln Conspiracy. What is your process when you're actually writing a book that involves such dense research with another writer? How does the collaboration work, especially, you know, during a global pandemic? Yeah. And listen, uh, God bless Josh Mensch for putting up with me. I mean, he, he and I work together on our TV shows. He's one of the reasons why we were able to tell these stories of lost history. He's an award-winning documentarian. His research is impeccable. And what we first do is we sit down and we find this, whatever the plot is. But the key moment, John, is basically saying, what's the book really about? You know, telling old stories of history are fine, but they are irrelevant unless they tell us something about where we are today. And we saw the rise in anti-Semitism. We had no idea where we'd be, but we were in, you know, obviously thinking about Charlottesville, thinking about what was happening you know, a few years back and saying, we need to discuss this in the context of where we are and watching you know, a group of, of hate mongers take control and take power and use that to hit marginalized communities. That is just too important. And then what will happen is the research starts. It's, it's six months to a year of research. Um, right. And in this case, you know, when we did Lincoln and, and George Washington, you can go to the National Archives. You can go to the New York Historical Society. You can go to great places. But here we needed to get the Nazi records. We needed to get the Soviet records. So we had to find researchers who spoke German and who spoke Russian. And that was a completely new wrinkle for us. And, wow. and then Josh will basically take a pass at like 50 pages he does the first pass and then it comes to me. And then I basically write, rewrite, switch things around. I also definitely add the thriller part. Um, so he'll give me things that are in order chronologically sometimes. And then I'll literally take it apart and say, no, 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 let's split this chapter into three. Let's right. move the bad guys here to the front. 
let's change the whole pacing. And, and Josh and I now actually, I don't even have to tell him anymore. I mean, he, he and I just see it eye to eye. And, and I always say, if you want to write with someone, you know, Elmore Leonard said that if you want to write a good book, you got to leave out all the parts that people skip. Yep. And it's, it sounds so easy, but I always say that Josh and I always agree on what the best parts are. So when, when auto scores any came, it wasn't like, oh, should we put him in or not? Both of us were like, this guy's story must be told. When it came to Franz Mayer, the paratrooper who in the middle of the desert is bringing in other paratroopers and hiding, you know, as a Nazi spy who's sleeping with this woman in Iran. And the woman is also sleeping with an American GI. And the whole thing is this kind of love triangle. And that's how we find out. I'm like, this is amazing. It's like Gossip Girl in World War II. Like we have to have this part in there. So he and I just tend to, as we look at these pieces, we build this sandcastle about 50 pages at a time. And that way we are always kind of in sync as to where we are. And then we're always talking about, you know, where are we going? Where are we heading? What are we doing? And, and the first book was, I think, really tricky for us to figure it out. But The Nazi Conspiracy is book three, as you said. Yeah. And I think at this point, we really do understand kind of like an old married couple, how these things work. I mean, it's so character driven. It's so story driven. It doesn't read like a history book. But I also have to say, it seems rather telling that you made the choice to tell the book in the present tense. And I'm curious, uh, was that an important choice for you? To do that that's that's my i firmly believe that changing that tense changes the story um yeah. i was very adamant that if i say to you um fdr was doing this then you go okay this is it's like black and white pictures of people it's automatically old and silly but if you say fdr is doing this um and the gun is pointed at you know at oh. him then you go you know i don't know someone said to me i think this is true that and frank Dr. King and Barbara Walters were all born in the same year. That's right. And yet we paint one black and white and we paint one completely modern and, but they're all the same. And it's just a matter of putting the present tense on the past. And, and you realize World War II is not that long ago. Exactly. It just isn't. It, it just is not. And it's not the revolutionary war. It's not the civil war and, and this disaster and, and, and the threat of the Nazis never went away. It's still right there. Which brings us to the phenomena of modern book banning, Brad. Last year, your books on Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King were banned in the state of Pennsylvania. Congratulations, I guess. Um, no, I'm right. very curious how the sales were for those books after the banning. But uh, I, I got to ask how your feelings are that now this wave of curtailing information has come to your doorstep. Yeah, listen, um, I, I was heartbroken by it, of course, because kids were not getting the stories of Dr. King and Rosa Parks. My wife was, of course, completely pissed off. And the reason it happened is, and we've seen this over and over, but it is a school board in York, Pennsylvania, in York County, Pennsylvania. Basically, uh, there was a list of great books to teach uh, racism to kids, te- ta- yeah. teach them about racism. And of our books, I Am Rosa Parks and I Am Martin Luther King Jr. were on that list. There were, you know, books by, uh, you know, Malala were on the list. Sonia Sotomayor's book is on the list. Yeah. And it, they had nothing to do with the content of the book. What the school board said is we're going to, we can't release this list. We're going to freeze this list until we read all the books. A year went by, John, a year. They're children's books. You can read them in five minutes. And a year went by and, and the list was still frozen and so basically what started as a freeze became a ban. No teachers, you know, they were like, we can't use these. Can we use them? What do we do? And I went to the school board. These students said to me, can, Brad, can you come speak to the school board and tell them? And I went to the school board all impassioned on the Zoom meeting in the, in the pandemic. I read from the final scenes of I Am Rosa Parks. And it says, I'm, 
I, you know, I'm not a famous business person. I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm just an ordinary person. And I'm proof that there's no such thing as an ordinary person. And I said, this is what you're denying these kids. This is what you're standing against right now. And I thought I'd save the day for democracy. And then, John, all these students from York County start speaking. And all these parents and mothers start speaking. And they're saying, these kids saying, why, because my skin is brown, do you not want me to have books about people who are brown? Why is every book on this list about a brown person and you can, and I can't have them? How dare you take these stories away from me? And the truth was, I didn't even need to be there. These kids were such superstars. And, and by the time they were done, literally yelling at these and, and passionately speaking at these school board members, the school board reversed their vote, undid the ban. But I don't look back and say, well, that was victory. That was a disaster. And all we're seeing is that disaster growing, is watching these parent groups saying, you know, here are better books that our kids should have. We should ban these. If you're banning books, you're on the wrong side of history every time. What's next for you, Mr. Meltzer? So we have um, coming out next week, the following week, we do our next kids' book. So after the Nazi conspiracy, which is out right now, uh, next week we do I Am John Lewis. Um, our next in the ordinary people change the world series about the great civil rights icon who teaches you how to get in good trouble, which we felt like was the appropriate thing. So we have in one week fighting Nazis, the other week fighting racism. Um, we felt like this is our one, two punch for 2023. And then in March we do our, in the ordinary people change the world series, our first autistic hero. We do. I am temple Grandin, And we just had so many parents asking us, when are you going to do an autistic hero? And, And we really, we really do listen to parents and kids out there. So excited to have that out. And then the lightning rods out in paperback. And then I'm going to take a nap, I think is what I'm going to do. <laughs> well, I look forward to picking up the John Lewis and, uh, and Temple Grandin book. I should tell you that my 10 year old's favorite activity is finding the picture of you inside all of your books. He always, you're, you're his Waldo. So I'm sure you hear I that. said, I'm the bald, where's Waldo is what Chris Eliopoulos, our incredible artist. He hides me in every book. He also, you can tell him to look for, they also hide Superman or Clark Kent in every book. Oh. They hide, we hide the number, we hide the number 27 in every book. And we also, your son will love this. We hide the next hero in every book. So if you read, I am John Lewis, Temple Grandin's hidden in that book. If you want to know who's next, look in the, I am Temple Grandin book and you will see every hero. The next hero is always hidden. I love it. And why, why 27? I've hid that in every book. I will not tell you why people think it's because Leonardo da Vinci used to hide the number 27 it has nothing to do with da Vinci. Although I love that detail. Um, but it's, I just love, it's, it's my secret number. And I feel like you have to put your, your traditions in your books. And so I, we've hidden them there for 25 years and kids are so amazing. They just finally started catching it. And it took them, t- it, it took them a decade to figure it out, but finally they're like, wait a minute. And these kids are way smarter than we are. Okay. I have to ask, what is your t-shirt? Is it Atari 2600 adventure? Of course it's Atari right. 2600 adventure. Good for you, man. Fucking Gen X forever. That it's got is there a, half an hour, but just like, it's gotta be, it's gotta be. Ha, uh, so, so by the way, you've seen ready player one, right? Of not only read. So, so my son, let's just share son stories a moment. So your son, as you, you said, you know, yellow submarine is his favorite movie. Of course you're giving him what you love. So uh, Chris Eliopoulos, the artist on the series knows I love Atari about six years ago, buys me one of the Ataris where they have every game built into the one machine. You can buy oh. them now. So I come down, my oldest son doesn't want anything to do with it. Like, these, these graphics suck. This is bullshit. Yeah. My favorite game growing up was adventure, finding the dot, doing the whole thing was the best thing I ever had. Warren Robinette. And that's it. And, and I, I come downstairs and my younger son was a little older. He's uh he's 14. So a little older than yours. 
Um, I come downstairs and he's playing Atari and, and he's going alphabetically through the games because they all come up at once. And he's like, but he's playing adventure because he's in the A's. And he's like, dad, this game is awesome. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> this game is awesome. So he literally, he said, can we get matching shirts last week? And I was like, I've been waiting my whole life to have Love a child it. who understands my particular obsessions. And so he has one and I have one and I can't wait for him to come home from school today so we can see. Uh, you'll have him playing Yars Revenge in no time. It's great. Yars Revenge was that. I went to the lady. screening of I went to the screening of, uh, of of Ready Player One, and I was the one guy in the audience standing up screaming about the Easter egg because I did that Yar all the Yars time Revenge, when I was thirteen. Way, I taught all my when, friends how to find the secret room. When 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 Yars Revenge came out, that was when the graphics seemed to have gone up. Like right, it was like you had the original Atari like this, then you went to like Pitfall in the Activision say, but Yars Revenge seemed like, but but the the invisible dot. The great thing was, is when they built the Atari thing that you can give to your kid, yeah. they built the invisible dot in it. So I was able to, with my son, have him find the invisible dot, which I was like, I don't think there's anything better I could give as a gift to my child than nerdiness like that. <laughs> I mean, that's I, like giving him, that's like giving him yellow submarine, man. That's it. You're I, it I right. took my kid to his first concert this year and it was, it was McCartney two days before he turned 80 and Springsteen came out on stage. So I can relate exactly to what you're saying. Spectacular. And I'm taking, and I'm taking my son cause he's coming here uh, to see Billy Joel uh, at the end of the month. Nice. Well, you know what? I, I wanted, I, I wanted to go see McCartney. He wasn't coming here when we could see him, but that was the one that killed me. Cause I was uh, like, I don't know if he's going to go again. I hope he comes back because he added a horn section, Brad, and it's like a whole new band. Hearing these songs again with a oh, I saw him, I section. saw him on the last tour. I saw him, but I, I didn't get to take my kids. My wife and I went, of course. Yeah, but it didn't work out when he was here that for my youngest. But I wanted seventeen. You saw him the yeah. I saw that's exactly when that I was saw great him. Yeah, he yeah, did the stadium just, tour. You got. And by go the way, with... by the way, that was when 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 that happened. I was I got the uh, it was a present for me that my uh, family got me, and I was like, he's going to sound old and bad. And he sounded, of course, as you know, spectacular. Like yeah. he just, it's amazing to me because as you know, not everyone sounds spectacular as they hit their older years. Of course. Well, I mean, the voice is very thin now and you can watch as Glastonbury said on YouTube and, and here, I mean, the, the voice is very, very thin. Um, I don't know if he'll be able to put out a live album from this tour, but I'm telling you, man, just just watch it for the addition for the songs. Like even the Wings songs, I don't care about Let Him In. I'm like, why is Let Him In in the set list? The three-piece horn section, just invigorated the entire band. We had oh, on show that uh, week uh, so I'm gonna, and I'm gonna. Uh, you've just taken my afternoon. That's what I'm gonna do. Now. Honestly, like to hear, to hear um, from Revolver. I was alone. I took a ride to do. Got to get you into my life. Yeah, my, there, yeah. Oh, well, that with the horns the is gonna be spectacular. Right. I mean, that's the song that it's made for, right? That's yeah. why you bring them. Got check out the Glastonbury set. Okay, uh, I'm literally going right, now, going right now. Actually, I'm gonna pull it up right now. That's awesome, man. Well, healthy, happy New Year. You too, sir. Glastonbury right now. Well, honestly, my only regret is that this book didn't come out before Christmas because it would make a great gift for anyone who loves history, uh, who loves World War II, or who just loves a truly gripping read. The book, again, is The Nazi Conspiracy, The Secret Plot to Kill Roosevelt, Stalin, and Churchill by Brad Meltzer with Josh Mensch. It is such a pleasure to have you back, Brad. Happy New Year. Healthy Happy New Year, John. Thanks for being with us. Whatever the genre is, you're always so supportive, and, and it means more in then you realize, and I obviously love the message you put out there for people to fight back when they see injustice and it really matters. I'm just a fan of good stories. Thank you so much. And we'll be right back after this. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. 
They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So here's the deal. In 2018, Portland, Oregon romance thriller novelist Nancy Brophy allegedly shot her husband Daniel at the Oregon Culinary Institute. And in the course of the investigation, Ms. Brophy was revealed to have written books about women in difficult relationships that sometimes featured women protagonists fantasizing about killing their own husbands. It happens. But this case became internationally famous when it was discovered that the accused Ms. Brophy had once written an online essay called How to Murder Your Husband. Back in 2011, Nancy Brophy was recently convicted on May 25th of 2022 and sentenced to life in prison. And there's already a movie about her on Lifetime, but this is not like any Lifetime movie you have ever seen. This is a dark, slow burn psychological story featuring Sybil Shepard in possibly the most un-Sybil Shepard role of her career. And her husband is played by our friend Steve Gutenberg. Yes, Steve Gutenberg gets killed. I am always happy to welcome the three-time Golden Globe Award-winning star of The Last Picture Show, The Heartbreak Kid, Taxi Driver, chances are Woody Allen's Alice, because I think you're so great in that. You drive me crazy in that movie, as well as Moonlighting and Sybil. Would you please welcome the former Miss Teenage Memphis, Sybil Shepard. Hello. Well, thank you. You know, it's interesting. I didn't even make it as Miss Teenage America, and the woman that won Miss Teenage America did the hula. She was an at-large candidate, so we don't know where she was from. And she did the hula as her talent. And then I got Miss Congeniality. That's right. I knew that. You did win Miss Congeniality. Yeah, watch out. <laughs> you know, the, the, the congenial people are the ones that might kill you. What oh, goes... why should I talk about that now? <laughs> well, this character, I love that uh, it will take a lot of people a few minutes to realize it's you. And I love when you take on roles like this. But I didn't know. You've never played a murderer before. No, I've never played a murderer before. I actors have all different kinds of ways that they decide how to find out how to find out how to express their characters. I would say for me, fifty percent comes from what I see in the mirror. So when this this Shelley, the brilliant hairdresser, handmade this custom made wig for me, mm-hmm. I put it on and I saw it. And I went, I don't know who that is. And then they put the clothes on me that like I would never wear. And I began to understand who this woman was. Did you listen to audio of her speech patterns, things like that? No, I did not on purpose. I did not want to imitate her. You wanted to create your own. I had to discover it. I had to make it my own. I I love that you talk about how 50% of it is the external because I think that's a great process. There's that great scene in Wings of Desire where Peter Falk is looking in the mirror on the movie set, just trying on different hats until he figures out who his character is. And it's really fun seeing you do this kind of work, but I'm, I'm curious about the emotional prep 
that you did for this character because this this again this is a this is a dark film this is not some you know murder romp on lifetime this this is your travis bickle <laughs> civil shepherd you are so right it is my travis e- bickle write that down i'm doing another memoir it's seriously come out. because i kept thinking of travis bickle the whole time <laughs> this this is this is the darkest slow burn i've ever seen for a lifetime film and we know how it ends we know she's led to violence so the whole time we're watching a movie about you know that crazy lady we know who winds up really being crazy. Yes. um, Actually, I began to feel it uh, and and see it. And when I I got my first uh, prints where they send you out the prints, I thought I was looking at black and white prints uh, because they seemed like have no color in them, but they did have color. I killed a couple of them, and then I realized I didn't need to kill any more. By that, I mean tell them they can't use that particular print. Right, right. But then I realized that, no, they're not black and white. It's the, What I'm seeing is the dark and the light in the character, the evil. And is there light? I'm not sure with this character, so... Then I gave up trying to uh, decide which should be not put in. I said, "Let they're all horrible. But you don't play her as evil. I think in the hands of the wrong actor, this would be a, a crude cartoon. You, This is a very troubled woman, a woman who keeps trying and trying and failing. And I'll be honest, I, I my heart broke for her several times during the story because as dark as her choices are, as transparently bad at being a murderer as she is, I mean, she really didn't plan this out very well. There's something in her that is just so grounded in pain that it really guides the character the whole time. And it must have also just been fun for you to play someone so not glamorous. Well, now, my my father was um, my character's father was a violent alcoholic. And then my father was as well. So I had experience in that. Uh, I was, uh, my father beat us, all the children. That was uh, something that people did back then a lot more. I hope they don't do it anymore. But I remember that one time I gave my dad a look like, you're never going to hit me with the belt again, and he never did. But at the same time, I learned a lot of good things from that man. Taught me to ride that bicycle. He put me on the back of that red bicycle and said, here you go, and just sent me down that sidewalk, and there was nothing else to do but to keep on riding that bicycle. So... In your research, when you learned that that Nancy Brophy had also, you know, that she had been a a survivor of childhood abuse, did that give you something to latch on to, to find a a core of of this person's pain? Yes, sir, it was. It was a very important part of this. Is it fun for you? I've asked you this before, but is it fun for you to play someone this glammed down to really just get lost in a character and not look the way we are accustomed to you looking? Yeah, it's very satisfying, but sometimes I feel myself, as we talk about the character, I give you a look that I feel like I never knew how to give another person that look until I played this part, a kind of look of evil. I don't know, when you, as you talk about it, as we talk about the common things we had in terms of our childhood, this character and me. Yeah. Um, and then again, the fact that my grandfather, uh, that's where the, the reddish blonde hair came, was my maternal grandfather. He took me to the Memphis Gun Club when I was 12 years old to learn to shoot his shotguns. He wanted, me, he wanted to make sure that I could protect myself, and I still have those guns in my house. So mm. if you come in uninvited, <laughs> I wouldn't advise you to come in uninvited. <laughs> Let me quote your character from the film. 
one of the great uh, signs that you're watching a movie about someone who's disturbed is she narrates it as an author in the third person. And at one point you say your, your character, which is your character referring to whoever you're writing about, your character goes along living her life like the normal person she is. So what's the shove that pushes her out of normal? Everybody talks about the last straw, the one that breaks the camel's back. The bigger question is, what's the first straw? And that's what I love because you feel for her as she fails and goes through these humiliations and slides into this darkness. Yes. Well, it was a scary journey. I found myself forgetting who I was, looking in the mirror and seeing another person that I'd never seen. And and even now, uh, sometimes when I was looking at you just a few minutes ago, I felt like there was part of Nancy that was looking at you. And that always scares me a little bit when I, I feel like it's Nancy looking at someone. Yeah, I heard you haven't watched this movie straight through. I couldn't watch it. I could. I didn't have the... Um, it was too upsetting. <laughs> yeah. But for me, you did the work. Like, yes. I love watching a character where I can tell that you got a chance to do the work and this film made me think about your theater life because there's this legend that your friend Orson Welles once told you that if you wanted to because you were already famous and successful but if you wanted to work in theater and practice the craft that way that you couldn't go to LA or New York that you had to go somewhere where there were no critics to really learn how to go deep into the character. And I know you made your debut on Broadway opposite James Earl Jones in The Best Man, but I'm curious about that story. Is, is that a true legend that Wells really did tell you to, to go do theater off the beaten path? It is true. And um, he also yelled at me once uh, right after breakfast. This is going to be loud, by the way. Everything you know is balls, you hear? Balls. And I went, well, that makes me feel great. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but anyway, he was amazing. Uh, I went, tried out for something called Lunch Hour. It was a play written by Gene Kerr. Gene Kerr? No, not, that can't be right. But something, anyway, you can look up the play, Lunch Hour, one word. I didn't get the part. Um, another great actress, uh, another great actress, like I'm talking about myself, but Gilda Radner <laughs> got the part on Broadway. The great... Uh, a uh, gift to me was not getting the part on Broadway and doing something called the Straw Hat Circuit. So I started off doing it at a dinner theater, the oldest dinner theater in America, in Elitch's, in oh, that's up in Maine, in um, in Denver, and then went all the way up the coast and ended up in Elitch's in Maine. And that taught me everything uh, about acting because we were all, the cast continued to travel together. We're always the same cast. And after the show was over, we always made sure we would start, choose the best bottle of wine to start our wine drinking with because <laughs> we didn't have a lot of good wine. <laughs> Did it make you a better actor? Oh, absolutely taught me everything because you, um, it changed every time. And as actors, we, you know, you can't go after you've done theater or perform live. You can't just, you're, you've got this, uh, incredible, I don't know how to say it, energy. Yeah. It takes at least three to four to five hours to, to come down after that. Yeah. But also it's a great experience and, and Straw Hat Circuit. I'm looking for, if you see one, if you see a nice inexpensive straw hat, pick up one for me. Okay, you got it. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a I'll call. reimburse you. I always felt that, you know, without that period in your life, the performance, the characterization and mood lighting probably wouldn't have been as, as sharp as it was. Yes, because when you're in the theater, it's, uh, well, first of all, you learn you get to the theater three and a half hours before. 
And then uh, also replacing Candice Bergen. I love Candice Bergen. She's wonderful. Uh, she had to be miked because she hadn't ever studied voice. One of the greatest things I did was start studying voice actually in Memphis before I even graduated from uh, high school. And uh, the lady that was teaching me had once coached the uh, Metropolitan Opera years and years ago before the Metropolitan had their whole chorus where they traveled everywhere together. They would hire local people to do the smaller parts. And then I studied continued, uh, Eileen Brennan suggested that I start uh, studying opera with another wonderful teacher. I, st- I still study with her once in a while. I've had a number of great uh, singing teachers, so I did not have to be miked. And that captures mm-hmm. everything too. That's except it. I would come in the stage door, almost I mean, it took me forever to learn this, and start up, the. It was, this was an old theater, no elevators. So I'd start up the wrong staircase, and the, the, the man there would say, Sybil, it's the, wrong, it's the next staircase. Sybil, come on. Get with it. And then Angela Lansbury was in it when I took over, and then she left, and then she was replaced <laughs> by a wonderful actress. And so then my – my um, because in the theater, it's all about your experience and your age. Of course. So you get the best dressing room based on that, not <laughs> not where your, where your title is. Well, but see, this is what I'm talking about with this character. This is yeah. another example of you doing the work. You were a movie star by this point, <laughs> and then you decided to become a great artist. Well, when I told um, – John Cassavetti's wife, I said, I'm going to, nobody wants me to do it, but I'm going to go off and do some regional theater. She said, oh, Sib, you're going to love it. Yeah. Oh, God, I love that woman. She said, it's nothing like the theater. It's the most fun in the world. And what was her name? Jenna Rollins. Jenna Rollins was a great inspiration to me. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Fugel saying this is progress after dark. How do you like doing these press tours? It's always fun watching you do these. I'm, I'm curious. You must be like, I, I imagine the questions you get all the time. <laughs> like I imagine it's a lot of, oh, it's the 50 year anniversary of this one, 50 year anniversary of that <laughs> one. I mean, you seem to roll with it pretty well. I've always loved it. I've always felt that uh, every time you talk to someone, you have a different opportunity to learn something, maybe to uh, maybe be honest about something that maybe somebody else maybe didn't feel that it was right to be honest about, maybe have a chance to make something a little more real and also a little more fake, so it's kind of fun. How so? Just kind of lie about a few things, so it's kind of funny. 
How Dylan-esque of you. (laughs) (laughs) Dylan who? Not the Dylan. Well, yeah, Bob always, Bob always in his interviews would put details like he grew up riding the rails or that he had worked in a traveling circus act or something. And he would always throw in something like that. I've always loved that man. Well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good taste. Yeah, well, I love a few good things. Who do you get asked more about when you're in these interviews? <laughs> who, who, when, you, when you're sitting down up at somebody like me, who do they ask more about, Bruce Willis or Elvis? Oh, my Lord. I've never heard you do an interview where someone didn't ask you about one of those two guys. Well, that's true. Well, I have to tell you that the chemistry between both of us was extraordinary and instant. Would that be Elvis or Bruce? Oh, both. <laughs> However, Elvis I was not working with, so I was free to... Uh, you know, go all the way, so to speak. Go, yeah, well, I, I mean, was he, there's say. some ways he hadn't gone that he got. He learned with me, but well, I was actually really impressed at the stories you've shared about your brief relationship with uh, with the Pride of Memphis. I mean, well, I know. I wish he he was wonderful. You know, he called yeah, he called Peter Bogdanovich Dog Bonovich. He called <laughs> Peter Bogdanovich Dog Bonovich. That's right. And I remember I was waiting for him to come in the theater because he'd take over the theater, this local theater, like at midnight, and we'd we'd see a movie. And and so I'm sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting for Elvis to come. And finally we go sit down, me and my best friend Jane Howard, since we've been best friends, known each other since kindergarten. And we sit down and suddenly everybody in the row to my right gets up and moves one over and here comes Elvis and he offers me a, a piece of gum. So that was my first interaction was just uh, he offered me a piece of gum. I think he was chewing one, too. Why do you think it didn't work out or couldn't have worked out? Elvis had such a difficult life. You know, there's a great uh, Peter Gralnick wrote an extraordinary two-volume biography. The first is Night Train to Memphis because uh, Elvis was born in Tupelo, Mississippi. The second is Careless Love. And I was Mm -hmm. interested when I read that one to look up to to see if my name was listed in the back. And it turned out that when I was in Las Vegas, I thought I was the only woman having an affair with, with Elvis at that time. But no, there were two other women on the same floor. Wow. (laughs) Ain't that the way it is? Yeah. yeah, I mean, you have Elvis stories that top a lot of them. (laughs) You know, I want to thank you as someone who loves Memphis. Um, Uh, You helped bring about my favorite museum in this country, the Mm -hmm. National Civil Rights Museum, which is in the former Lorraine Motel. Uh, I went there uh, when visiting Memphis, and then I came back and brought my parents to Memphis just to Mm. visit that museum. Mm. And I didn't know at the time that you had helped fund it and helped get it off the ground. Yes, I remember um, we were all uh, with seniors 1968 in April, and somehow we knew something had happened. We were at seniors were standing looking. We were looking uh, west towards the Mississippi River because we had a feeling that we knew something terrible had happened because somebody came like the principal came on the speaker and said, everybody go home now. So I had a feeling that Dr. King had been assassinated. And then I would never forget that as long as I lived. And I remember that dedication. I got to meet Rosa Parks. And wow. and then I was standing at the bottom of the wooden stairs of the ded- dedication. That's devastating. And my publicist, Sybil, wait right here. I'll be right back. And she went running away. I thought, where's she going? She comes up with this guy. He, I think he was, what was he? Uh, Clinton. Wasn't he governor of Arkansas or something? Yeah, I seem and to remember he, that. He didn't, yeah, and he didn't, he didn't even speak. And uh, huh. he's, but he's he's he was a fast. What a brilliant man! I mean, for those who don't know, the museum is in the hotel where Dr. King was murdered, and the yes. museum walk ends where you are taken to the spot itself. And it's after witnessing the history of this country, the kind of history they don't teach in schools too often. 
it's great. And I just want to thank you as an American for being one of the people to use your celebrity and clout to open that place up. Well, thank you so much. Um, it's a great honor, really, for me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm just, have you know what I've become as an old lady? What's I've that? Become a, I've become, excuse me, an effing crybaby. I cry at everything. You name it, and I cry yeah. or laugh. I, 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 have the same, uh, I have the same issue. I don't think it's a problem. <laughs> Do you have a hard time receiving praise? Maybe. Yeah? I think that having to play this murderer, um, this terrible, horrible person, brought something out in me that I would never have imagined could be in me. And I can understand in a way how people can go be driven to lengths to do so horrible things that they would have never imagined, say, as a child that they would do. That's a very deep empathy to have. Yes. Well, my sister, Gladys Terry Shepard, she committed suicide at 69. Uh, she loved women. She was a lesbian. and um but I will say that uh, Gladys Terry uh, Shepard was a wonderful person. And I know when I went to lead the first gay and lesbian march, because those were the only uh, words we had for it back then. I remember. They said, uh, I said to them, would Martin Luther King have, have objected to allowing me to march next to him because of the color of my skin? That that, therefore, because I wasn't a lesbian, right. why shouldn't I be allowed to uh, exactly. carry the banner? I mean, it's the allies that helped as much as the activists in the long run. And, you know, I look at you and you had every right to go be a fabulous celebrity model. But you're <laughs> someone who took the capital of the fame and you mm. used it for mm. women's reproductive rights, for yes. bringing about the Civil Rights Museum, for fighting for LGBT equality. And most thrillingly enough, I, I find the stuff yeah. you're doing now, the roles you're choosing now, <laughs> to be way more interesting. No disrespect oh. to Mr. Bogdanovich, but this is some great character work. Thank I can't you. wait to see what you do next. No telling, honey. Watch out. It's really nice to see you, and I'm glad you're well and doing such great work. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. Thank you. My great pleasure. Oh, always, always. You can see Sybil Shepard in How to Murder Your Husband, okay. the Nancy Brophy story. Yes, she kills Steve Gutenberg. It premieres Saturday, January 14th at 8 p.m. only on Lifetime. It's like the 80s nightmare. Sybil Shepard kills Steve Gutenberg. It's a wonderful performance. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for making the time for me today. Stop it. <laughs> Knock it off. Knock it off. Knock it off.